Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 390 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Prehistory. Mole, Part 4, and Extending Apollo. Today, we will finish coverage of Mole and move on. I didn't want to end the previous episode on a down note, but sadly, this episode has to begin with one. On January 20th, 1969, Richard Milhouse Nixon was sworn in as president. He instructed the director of the new Bureau of the Budget, Robert Mayo, and the Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, to find ways to cut defense spending. The mole was an obvious target. An article in the Washington Monthly titled, quote, How the Pentagon Can Save $9 Billion, end quote, was written by Robert S. Benson, a former Department of Defense employee. He described the mole as a program that received a half a billion dollars a year and ought to rank dead last on any rational scale of national priorities. General Stewart briefed the new Deputy Secretary of Defense, David Packard, on the mole which Stewart described as the best path to very high-resolution imaging at the earliest date. Laird, who as a congressman had criticized McNamara for inadequately funding the mole, was favorably disposed towards the mole program, as was Siemens, who was now the Secretary of the Air Force. On March 6th, Packard directed Foster to proceed on the basis of $556 million for fiscal year 1970, and that would be equivalent to $3 billion today. This budget cut required postponement of the first crewed mission of Mole to February of 1972. The Bureau of Budget did not accept Laird's decision. Mayo argued that the resolution provided by the Keyhole Satellite Gambit 3 was adequate and proposed canceling both the Mole and the Keyhole 9 Hexacon. 
A mole mission was expected to cost $828 million in today's dollars, but a Gambit 3 launch cost only $127 million in today's dollars. Mayo argued that the value of very high-resolution imaging was not worth the extra cost. In April of 1969, President Nixon reduced Mole's funding to $1.989 million in today's dollars and canceled Hexagon. Of course, this meant further postponement of the first crewed flight by up to a year, and the Bureau of Budget continued to press for the Mole to be canceled. In a last-ditch attempt to save the Mole, Layard, Siemens, and Stewart met with Nixon at the White House on May 17th and briefed him on the history of the program. Siemens even offered to find $1.38 billion to continue the program from elsewhere in the U.S. Air Force's budget. Now, the mole team thought the meeting went well, but... President Nixon ultimately decided to fund Hexagon and cancel the mole program. On June 7, 1969, General Stewart ordered all work on Jiminy B, the Titan 3M, and the mole spacesuit to cease and to cancel or curtail all other contracts. The official announcement that the mole had been canceled was made on June 10, 1969. Had mole flown on schedule, it would have been the first space station. Some believe that mole should have launched astronauts before the optics were ready. Abramson later concurred that his and other mole astronauts' advice to fly the first mission fully operational was in fact a mistake. He learned while serving as Deputy Administrator of NASA in the early 1980s that launching anything, even an empty can, made cancellation of a project much less likely. Al Cruz believed that automated systems were probably superior and said that when he saw high-resolution photographs from Gambit 3, he knew that Mole would be canceled. Lou Allen, Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, reportedly said in 1981 that human spaceflight was not useful. He had helped to cancel Mole, and the general said, he would have canceled the space shuttle program, too. Although describing his training as payload specialist for STS's 62A as the most exciting time of his life, Edward C. Aldrich, Jr., NRO head during the mid-1980s, said in 2009 that Mole was canceled, quote, because we couldn't find where having men in the satellite was beneficial. In fact, it was harmful. You had to put a life support system in. The cameras that now they can talk about were on the satellite, 
people moving around in the satellite created noise, which was bad for the cameras. So, you look at the cost and the complexity. The program had to be terminated, end quote. Okay, so the bowl program has been canceled, but let's not forget its legacy. Following the cancellation, a committee was formed to handle the disposal of Mole's assets, valued at about $69 million in today's dollars. The Acquisition and Tracking System, Mission Development Simulator, Laboratory Module Simulator, and Mission Simulator were all transferred to NASA by the end of 1973. The Mole Program Office at the Pentagon closed on February 15, 1970, and the office in Los Angeles closed on September 30, 1970. The Director of Space Systems, Brigadier General Lou Allen, became the point of contact for contracts that were terminated. But those contracts with Aerojet, McDonnell Douglas, and United Technologies Corporation were still open in June 1973. The Aerojet contract had only small claims totaling the current equivalent of $54,000. But there remained reservations of $3.5 million in today's dollars on the McDonnell Douglas contract due to a subcontractor dispute and California franchise tax. The United Technologies Corporation contract was still worth up to the equivalent of $231 million in today's dollars. The actual amount, depending on how much work was attributable to the mole and how much to the ongoing work on the Titan III. At the time, the mole was canceled. 192 service and 100 civilian personnel were employed on mole activities. Within weeks, 80% of the service personnel were given new duty assignments. The civilians were assigned to the Space and Missile Systems Organization, SAMSO. The service personnel included 14 of the 17 mole astronauts. Finley had returned to the U.S. Navy in April of 1968, and Adams had left in July of 1966 to join the X-15 program. He flew in space on his seventh flight on November 15, 1967, only to be killed when his aircraft broke up. Lawrence had died in an F-104 crash at Edwards Air Force Base on December 8th of 67. All the remaining 14 except Terres wanted to transfer to NASA, but Deke Slayton, NASA's Director of Flight Operations, believed that he did not need more astronauts. However, George Mueller, NASA's Deputy Administrator, wanted to maintain good relations with the Air Force, so Deke Slayton accepted the seven mole pilots that were 35 years old or younger as NASA Astronaut Group 7. Now, all of them flew on the space shuttle, starting with Crippen on STS-1. NASA also took crews as a test pilot, and he would fly NASA's aircraft until 1994. 
Due to their exposure to highly classified information, those who did not transfer to NASA could not engage in combat for three years because of the risk of capture. Not being able to serve in Vietnam hurt their careers, and some soon left the military. The Titan III booster became a mainstay of the military satellite program. The Titan III-C version was capable of lifting 9,100 kilograms, that's 20,000 pounds, into low Earth orbit. Its successor, the Titan III-D, developed for Hexagon, could lift 14,000 kilograms, or 30,000 pounds. And the Titan III-M, developed for the mole, would have been able to lift 17,000 kilograms, or 38,000 pounds. In comparison, NASA's Saturn 1B could lift 16,000 kilograms or 36,000 pounds, but the cost of a Titan 3M launch was half that of a Saturn 1B. However, the Titan 3M never flew, but the UA-1207 solid rocket boosters developed for the mole were eventually used on the Titan 4 and the Space Shuttle solid rocket boosters were based on materials, processes, and the UA-1207 design developed for mole with only minor changes. NASA also used work on the Gemini B spacesuits for the agency's own suits. Mole's waste management system flew on Skylab, and... NASA's Earth Science used other mole equipment. The Prototype Integrated Maneuvering and Life Support System is in the National Museum of the United States Air Force. Six honeycombed borosilicate glass mirrors made by Corning for mole, each with a diameter of 180 centimeters or 72 inches, were combined to make the multiple mirror telescope in Arizona, the third largest optical telescope in the world at the time of its dedication. At the time of cancellation, work on Space Launch Complex 6 was 92% complete. The main task remaining was conducting acceptance test. It was decided to complete the construction and test but not install the aerospace ground equipment and then place the facility in caretaker status with a caretaker crew provided by the 6,595th Aerospace Test Wing. In 1972, the Air Force decided to refurbish Space Launch Complex 6 for use with the Space Shuttle. This costs more than anticipated, about $5 billion in today's dollars, and the date of the first launch had to be postponed from June of 84 to July of 86. The airport runway at Easter Island developed for Mole was extended by another 430 meters to 3,370 meters or 11,000 feet, to allow for an emergency space shuttle landing and a piggyback retrieval by a modified Boeing 747 shuttle carrier aircraft at a cost of $16 million in today's dollars. Preparations were underway for STS-62A, 
the launch of the Space Shuttle Discovery from Space Launch Complex 6, commanded by mole astronaut Bob Crippen and with Aldridge on board. When the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster occurred in January 1986, plans for Space Shuttle launches from Space Launch Complex 6 were abandoned, and none ever flew from there. No space shuttle was ever launched into a polar orbit. But beginning in 2006, Space Launch Complex 6 was used for Delta IV launches, including the National Reconnaissance Office's Keyhole 11 Kenan satellites. Some items of mole equipment made their way to museums. As I've mentioned previously, the Gemini B spacecraft used in the only flight of the MOLE program is on display at the Air Force Space and Missile Museum at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. A Gemini B spacecraft used for ground-based testing is on display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. It's on loan from the National Air and Space Museum. Like the other Gemini B spacecraft, it is differentiated from the NASA Gemini spacecraft by the words U.S. Air Force painted on it with accompanying insignia and by the circular hatch cut through its heat shield. Two MH7 training spacesuits from the MOLE program were discovered in a locked room in the Cape Canaveral Launch Complex 5 Museum on Cape Canaveral in 2005. Crippen donated his mole space suit to the National Air and Space Museum in 2017. In July 2015, the National Reconnaissance Office declassified over 800 files and photos related to the mole program. A book by the Center for the Study of National Reconnaissance Oral Historian Courtney V.K. Homer about the mole program called Spies in Space, came out in 2019, was based upon the trove of documents released by the NRO and with interviews she conducted with Abramson, Bobco, Crippen, Cruz, McClay, and Truly. Okay, now that we have taken that brief tangent into what could have been done with Gemini hardware, let's return to where we left off with a space station using Apollo hardware. In December of 1963, Dr. Vernon Brown suggested a series of missions to extend the basic Apollo system and expand lunar exploration. Now, he wanted these missions to bridge the gap between the Apollo landings and a more permanent lunar base using short-term shelters under the Integrated Lunar Exploration System. Although the plan did not initially receive much favor, it did spur lateral studies for other possible applications of Apollo hardware including that for a space station. But with the understanding that a space station would only be attempted after the primary goal of landing on the moon had been achieved. Now at this point, 
I feel it's important that I remind you of the meaning of a term before I use it again. The term is Apollo X. Apollo X was the designation given at various times during the Apollo program for follow-on versions of the spacecraft for extended Earth orbit operations. For a time, all follow-on projects using Apollo hardware were actually termed Apollo X. Okay, let's continue. In January of 1964, studies were conducted for the Apollo Command Service Module-supported missions and for all the other various concepts for space laboratory modules. By February, Lockheed had proposed that a Saturn V could be used to launch a larger space station with an operational life of five years and a crew of 24 launched by manned logistic vessels. The following month, Edward Gray, the Advanced Manned Missions Director in the Office of Spaceflight, asked the Manned Space Center to prepare a project definition plan for their Apollo X Orbital Research Laboratory and Large Orbital Research Laboratory Studies. This was an important step in defining the requirements for initiating a new program. The Lockheed study had indicated that a station could be launched by a two-stage Saturn V, a configuration later adopted for Skylab, and this could be launched between 1967 and 1970, with an optimum date of launch of July 1968. The station would be launched unmanned. Once in place, it could be rotated to generate centrifugal forces. It would be capable of supporting a crew of 24 and would be capable of autonomous operation for up to one month. The goal was to achieve full operational status of between one and five years. The crew would be exchanged after three months to a year, with resupply missions occurring every 90 days. The logistics spacecraft would be based on a six-man modified Apollo or 12-man modified lifting body design. The project was to make use of the maximum amount of available or planned equipment and technology. There was, however, a limitation. The increased pace of the Gemini and Apollo programs would slow the development of any hardware experiments or research for the space station program. When NASA created the Apollo Logistics Support System Office in April 1964, formal investigation of extensions of Apollo hardware was promoted. Surprisingly enough, this included applications for the lunar module beyond its role of landing on the moon. Although these studies were initially oriented toward lunar applications, Grumman, who built the lunar module, had already begun in-house feasibility studies into using the shell of the limb to outfit the vehicle for other tasks. Then, 
In July of 1964, Douglas submitted its study on a manned space research station that could be operated for one year by a crew of six and could be placed in orbit within five years. This study called for the use of either modified Gemini or Apollo spacecraft with rotation of the space station for artificial gravity. As these studies were produced, they began to establish the kind of research the space station might be used for. Of course, one of the most obvious areas was the use of an astronomical device above the polluted layers of Earth's atmospheres for celestial and solar studies. In September of 1964, a background briefing by Nancy Roman the director of NASA Astronomy Activities, noted that any celestial telescope would be designed to operate independently and autonomously, except for adjustment of the focus, replacement of the film, and repairs which would be done manually. At this point, NASA began to ask the scientific community to propose astronomical studies that could be the objective of a space station. In August of 64, a preliminary draft report of the Ad Hoc Astronomy Panel of the Orbiting Research Laboratory on the value of a manned astronomical observatory and defining objectives for such a mission was completed. This represented a major effort in proposing a crude scientific research facility with clearly defined objectives. Publicly supporting the space station, the panel indicated that although sounding rockets and satellite programs had merit, there was a case for a broader, more flexible, and ultimately more economical astronomy program that required the presence of humans in space. The panel wanted the program started as soon as possible, and although they agreed that this should initially be based on manned orbiting platforms, the panel looked forward to facilities being placed on the moon as well. Of course, there were great difficulties to overcome in achieving this bold objective. First, it would involve the assembly of large, bulky, and very fragile equipment in space. Second, on-orbit maintenance and repair would be required. Third, there would be certain modifications of equipment and direct monitoring of the scientific apparatus and support hardware. And fourth, Immediate data feedback would be required during critical and specialized operations. It was during these discussions when it was recognized the need for a flight-oriented astronaut that it was also discovered it might be nice to have a qualified astronomer in the crew to direct scientific operations on board the laboratory. Also in August of 1964, the Manned Spacecraft Center Spacecraft Integration Branch proposed two other purposes for the space station. MSC said Apollo X 
could be used in Earth orbit for biomedical and scientific missions of extended duration. MSC proposed a first phase mission, which consisted of a two-man Earth orbiting laboratory. The mission would last 14 to 45 days and would be launched by a Saturn 1B into a 230-mile orbit. Now this would kick off a series of missions that included first configuration a two astronauts 14 to 45 days with no laboratory module configuration b three astronauts 45 days with a single laboratory module configuration c three astronauts 45 days dependent systems and a double laboratory module. And finally, configuration D, three astronauts, 120 days using an independent systems laboratory module. To keep everything politically running smoothly between NASA and the Air Force, NASA emphasized that Apollo X was not in direct competition with the Air Force's mole program but was intended for technical and scientific objectives rather than military objectives. By the end of 1964, these studies had initiated a move towards tentative spacecraft development and mission planning through fiscal year 1969 under a new undefined program. Now let's move on to the medical aspects of an orbiting research laboratory. NASA's increased interest in the creation of a space station resulted in the scientific communities beginning studies into the types of research to be conducted and scientific requirements to make that research possible. Since the station would be crewed, or at least crewed part of the time, the biomedical aspects of prolonged spaceflight were of primary concern. During 1963, the investigations within NASA were soon supplemented by contract industrial studies. Later, participation by representatives of American medical fields provided guidance in directing future space efforts and also moved space medicine studies forward as a whole. Next, NASA formed a group of 20 consultants representing 16 specialties in life science. The consultants included some of the leading specialists in the nation. They met eight times between January and August of 1964. This group was called the Space Medicine Advisory Group, or, if you prefer, SMAG, and it considered three things. One, the current status of the program. Two, the program's applications. And three, various aspects of the biomedical program of an orbiting research laboratory. Under these three broad categories, the group was asked to consider its support for three fields of space medical research on a hypothetical space station. These fields were in life support, experiments, and design requirements. 
In December of 1963, before the first meeting of SMAG in January of 1964, the U.S. Air Force's mole program was officially authorized. And so, several Air Force medical officers joined the SMAG team for the meetings in accordance with the policy of closer cooperation between NASA and the Department of Defense. The group's findings, consisting of a 144-page report, was not issued until 1966. On release, the report identified or underscored the most important baseline data in controlled environmental factors. We are talking about life support here. Experiments that took into account those life support factors, the effects of bodily functions in reduced gravity, and how equipment could investigate and measure this data, and the most practical design and operational requirements for a facility to conduct such research. The consensus was that medical questions would remain unresolved with short 30-day missions, and that a 90-day mission would only partially answer their questions. For very long crewed missions, such as a trip to Mars, flights of one year or more would be required if the orbiting research laboratory program was to be effective. Of course, that news was a little disappointing, but not unexpected. On a more positive note, the group of life science specialists was unanimous in proposing one vehicle of extended duration rather than a series of different vehicles for different flights, which was the mole approach. The suggestion was also offered to upgrade the interior as the flight progressed, reflecting mission results and the latest technology. However, with no engineers as members of the group, the practicalities of achieving this were not discussed. These concepts were based on the mole study, with a crew of eight allowing for 400 to 500 cubic feet of space per person and an additional 1,000 cubic feet of volume for a laboratory. The report suggested that providing there were no adverse effects from the 30-day missions, a 90-day mission was well within the capability of the current technology. And if no insurmountable difficulties occurred from a three-month mission, the orbiting research laboratory should be designed for at least a year's use. The group also proposed the use of a high-lift drag vehicle as a recovery vehicle, rather than the ballistic capsule design, as this would offer a gentler re-entry profile for the crew and increased land recovery range. The orbit proposed was at a 30-degree inclination and 200 to 300 miles altitude, but not a polar orbit in order to avoid ionization radiation. 
It was also felt that the orbit should be as close to a 24-hour cycle as possible to maintain circadian rhythm. The group could not agree whether induced gravity would be beneficial or harmful to the crew and the experiments. It was indicated that gravity might be helpful for housekeeping. The use of small laboratory animals such as mice, rats, and squirrel monkeys for controlled experiments was also proposed. The smaller the animal, the more advantageous for weight, volume, and power requirements. The flight profile recommended an eight-person crew with two replaced at 90 days, two more at 240 days, and all eight at 360 days. Depending on rendezvous and resupply logistics, this would offer comparison sets of data for between 12 and 14 individual crew members and a similar number of animal test subjects that would follow the same cycle. A range of experiments was proposed to record ECG, temperature, blood pressure, and EEG. The group also proposed a range of vision experiments, strain gauges, tape recorders for voice analysis, measurement of body sweat, mass measurement and body volume measurement devices, a bicycle ergometer, negative lower body pressure apparatus, measurement of expelled respiratory air, blood gases, blood samples, the study of the otolith sensory system, and a range of x-ray examinations. In addition, the group highlighted the need to provide for the recording and collection, storage and refrigeration, and transport and recovery of specimens and experiment results. The report suggested direct contact with principal investigators and trained ground support personnel to offer communication support to the crew. It also suggested a procedure similar to that eventually provided for Skylab, the availability of a special ambulance vehicle with an easier re-entry mode perhaps with a specially trained medical attendant as a crew member. Finally, it was suggested that a total ground simulation prior to the flight, again a procedure that was adopted for Skylab, should be completed by the flight crew itself or astronaut-like subjects such as specialists, engineers, or backup crew members. This would be for the training and testing of ground equipment, systems and methodologies, thus allowing all onboard equipment to be tested in advance of orbiting research laboratory flights. Salutations 
from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 390 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Prehistory, Mole Part 4, and Extending Apollo. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you need to contact me, please use the new email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Don't use the old one, as it's been out of service for several months. Email really is the best way to contact me. Our next episode should be released by June 16th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 211 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Now, if you are using Google Podcasts, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or the search engine just won't find it. Google should be good at search engines by now, but I don't know what the issue with this is. But uh, they have a problem. My Twitter handle is working again, of course. I lost over 1,100 followers during the hacking of the account, but it's back up again. My handle's the same as it used to be, at Space Rocket Hist. So if you'd like to follow, I am now up to 130 followers. And I usually follow back when I can. I try to follow everybody back, but some of them say pending. And I guess I uh, they don't want me to follow them back. <laughs> so uh, that's all right, too. But I try to follow you back if I can. And you can also follow on Facebook if you like. And you can also keep up with me on Patreon slash patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. We're in addition to episodes I post some extra things. Had a few afterthoughts. Of course, uh, I would apologize for the mispronunciation of words and names. Well, it looks like we can thank old President Nixon for canceling Mole. <laughs> Even though it looked like the Air Force found some money, he still canceled it. <laughs> oh, boy. I can imagine the meeting that went on there. And, of course, he's got his tape recorder running. And I just imagine after they leave his office, it's like, Henry, Henry, help me erase this off the tape recorder. <laughs> we've got to uh, we've got to cut this part out. Maybe we can put a blank space in. <laughs> Well, that was my Nixon. Sorry, it's not that good. Sadly, there was something that kind of disturbed me about this episode, and it's off on a tangent that I just happened to see when I was researching this episode. The uh, The chief of staff of the Air Force, I believe it was in 1981, said that human space flight was not useful. Now, I sincerely hope that was taken out of context. Or there's been some mistake. 
because this was after the moon landings, after Skylab, and during shuttle operations. How in the world does someone make it to chief of staff of the Air Force and doesn't think human spaceflight is useful? Where did they dig up this old fossil? Our leaders should be looking toward the future. And as another former president once said, the future does not belong to the faint of heart. It belongs to the brave. Now, I'm talking to the young people in this audience, and I want to tell you, as you slip the surly bonds of earth, there will always be people that stand in your way. And I want to urge you to ignore them and leave them in the past, right where they belong. All right, let's move on to something more pleasant. I received an email from my friend John over at JSC in Houston, and he said I could share it with you. So here is John's edited words. I edited just a little bit out for clarity and some of the personal things. So here we go. Quote, I have taken on a new job in the Artemis program as chief engineer for the Lunar Rover Projects. Isn't that something? What a great job. I am so proud of John. Continuing, we are working an unpressurized rover to get up there, up there means the moon, by Artemis 5 around 2027 and a JAXA-built pressurized rover to get up there by Artemis 8 in 2030. Really exciting stuff and a brand new challenge for me, to be sure. I did get to see SLS roll out, and that was incredible. And here John changes the subject. On show 368, Apollo Splashdown, Apollo 16 Splashdown, you were talking about Charlie Duke stinking post-flight and what we do about that. Well, smell is hard. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you experienced that. Mrs. SRH can smell things differently than you. I have always said that my wife can smell a flea flatulent at 100 yards with the wind at her back. <laughs> and the things that make things stink happened at so small parts per billion and trillion levels. So it only takes a little bit to be noticed. <laughs> Apollo used charcoal. That was part of each lithium hydroxide can in the command module, lunar module, and the suit PLSS. It handles everything that can harm you over a short couple of week duration. The shuttle did the same thing. Skylab had molecular sieves for CO2 removal, so they had 9-pound charcoal canisters they replaced every 28 days. The ISS has an 
has on the USOS a 90-pound charcoal bed and a high-temperature catalytic oxidizer to get things that don't stick to charcoal. And on the Russian segment, a regenerative charcoal bed that can be cleaned up with an overboard vent and heaters. Orion is short duration with swing beds for humidity and CO2 control, so we have a 20-pound charcoal bed on it. But when you talk to the landing recovery crews from STS, they all say the same thing. The vehicle stinks when you first go in post-landing. But the good thing about our human design is that we get used to the smells that are always around us and don't notice them after a while. It is not that the astronauts don't think they stink. They just don't notice it. Oh, and yeah, we do have smell panels of people (laughs) that have good sniffers to test trace contaminant controls for waste management. Okay, another change of subject. I'm loving the dinosaur and mole coverage. Brilliant stuff. I'm loving the deep dives. Here is one for you. It was a concept to use a mercury capsule as the cockpit of the dinosaur. Just in case, I guess. It is amazing the things that they thought of back then. Now, what he's, he sent me a photo of this, and what it has is it has a mercury capsule sitting in a dinosaur. It is, a, it is so strange looking. You would not believe it. Uh, then he recommends some good books, uh, Into the Black by Roland White, which is a really good history about dinosaur, mole, and how their lines and crews made the space shuttle. Another book he recommends, Across the Airless Wilds. He says it's a great book on the Apollo LRV rover development. Then another subject change. Oh man, pinch me. As part of this new job, I got to meet Jack Smith. And that was incredible. Well, all the best, you two, in your new home. John Lewis Chief Engineer for Lunar Rovers. I would like to thank John so much for sharing that with us. What a fantastic new job. I'm so excited for him. I guess I I tend to live vicariously through him, but it's great. Congratulations, John. We all wish you the greatest success in your new position. And meeting Jack Smith, He's one of the few that's left, and boy, I would have loved to have met him too, man. That would have been great. Okay, for those still interested in the house project, and I guess I, there are quite a few of you that are, we have been moved in for about uh, two months now and and loving it. <laughs> Over the last fortnight, we did get one item off the punch list, and that was the kitchen and bathroom cabinets. Mrs. SRH had blue tape all over those cabinets where there were imperfections in the installation, and they finally came. It took them almost two months to get the cabinet installers out here to fix all their mistakes, but they finally did that. 
However, with that success, the basement kind of went in the wrong direction. We received a good bit of rain over the past two weeks and developed two new leaks. So that has to be fixed. The second leak occurred during a tornado warning. We were all in the basement. My uh, daughter came over from next door because she doesn't have a basement. And she was there with her family. And suddenly, water started flowing in from above the window. So, the siding guy, we got him to come back, and he recalked the top of the window siding. And hopefully, that will fix it. We did actually have two tornadoes touch down within a couple miles of the house. And I think there were about five to seven in the county. So I am thankful we came out of that experience in good shape. I've been posting pictures of the house every other week on Patreon. Last week I posted a picture of the mighty Yadkin River that borders the property on the south side. Next time I will post a picture of Mrs. SRH and me standing on the front porch. So if you are curious about our appearance, you'll be able to check that out after next week by going to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash space rocket history. And that is your house update. Over the past fortnight, we received seven donations and pledges, and I would like to thank Graham M. from Australia, who sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Matthew M. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Henny K. from Denmark donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Mark J. donated at the Mercury level. Dirk H. from New Zealand donated at the Soyuz level and earned an alien emoji. Peter M. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. Matthew F. from Tennessee sent in another donation and moved to the Artemis level. Our total Patreon donors have once again reached 256 with a goal of 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for the year have reached 322 with an overall goal of 500 for the year. We had a little bit better month in May thanks to the donations received this past fortnight. Very thankful for those. May was still below the monthly average we had last year. So if you are enjoying this podcast that has been running nine years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate by mail. Just email me to get my address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. And a big hello to John. Thanks so much for your email. It really meant a lot to us. Now for the drawing. The winner will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or two standard clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected 
Cameron Balmont. Cameron Balmont, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, (laughs) we will get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 322 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were President Ronald Reagan, NASA, astronautics.com, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story by David Hitt, Growing Up with Space Flight, Skylab slash ASTP by West Olezuski, the National Reconnaissance Office, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 391 posted by June 16th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now. Oh, I almost forgot. Happy birthday, grandson Luke.